Welcome to Sincerely Two Imperfect Therapists, a podcast where we discuss boundaries, money stories, healing within relationships, the therapeutic process, social justice from both the therapist and the client perspective, and the nuances of the human condition. While we may not have all the answers, we use our expertise and personal experiences to guide our discussions that we hope spark curiosity and reflection within yourself. Please note, this is a podcast that's not intended for supervision, therapy, or guidance for your individual needs. Rather, we intend to raise awareness on important topics. We do our best to provide content warnings, though if any topics are upsetting to you, please seek local emergency support. Hi everyone, I'm Laura. And I'm Aida. Today we're talking about bringing pieces of yourself into the therapy room. Let's get into it. Right. So thinking about bringing yourself into the therapy room, I think that's such an interesting topic, especially when in, you know, psychotherapy one-on-one in grad school, they tell you to keep disclosure and anything about yourself quite literally completely out of the therapy room. Yeah. Yeah. It is drilled into us. Um, And I imagine, I think when we thought about this episode topic, kind of imagining being in that grad school space where there's so much information being learned and that was just one of those that was continuously drilled into us nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. That everything is very um, structured and rigid in that way. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that comes a lot also from, if you think about like the, right, the father of psychology, Sigmund Freud, where um, things were really different back then. There was a lot of societal, cultural differences, um, particularly within the person who founded psychology. And so there's a lot of differences. And as we have seen over the course of years and doing cultural competency trainings is therapy has had to change and evolve over the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The nuances of how therapy was both developed as just a a treatment for mental health issues, but then what stigmas that brought into play for people when thinking about how do we operate as therapists? What do we do in the therapy room? What is the purpose? And I remember one of the the words or the phrases that goes alongside Freud and his teachings is being a blank slate, right? That's kind of at the epicenter of psychodynamic therapy um, is that there's really this vivid image of nothing about the therapist, blank walls, Mm -hmm. blank clock. There's nothing decorative anywhere. The therapist doesn't share literally anything. There's no conversational aspect or small talk. I'm curious at what point for yourself did you start to kind of notice yourself questioning some of the, that teaching? Honestly, it was um, it was when I got my first job, which wasn't exactly being a therapist. I was a readiness assessment uh, caseworker um, working with DCF, and I realized that the more I kept this blank slate approach, the less my clients were able to confide in me and trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, because to them, it was just me walking in there judging quite literally whether or not they can have their children back um, into their homes. And I realized that, well, there's just so much more that needs to be talked about why, you know, how we got here, how they got there. And um, I found that I was actually 
able to confidently sign off on a parent, a family receiving their children's back when I actually knew a little bit more about them than when I was just coming in and checking off some items on a checklist. And that's when I realized that, you know, because we were taught that therapy is not a one-size-fits-all approach, then why are we being taught that it's a one-size-fits-all approach? Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it's so interesting when you talk about the the one-size-fits-all approach because obviously psychodynamic was one of the approaches that's taught to us. And there is a number of, of theories kind of in the post-Freudian era that were also taught to us. Um, and it was very... I think oftentimes graduate school for therapists is theory based, that it's very much on finding a theory, using the interventions that that theory has shown um, is effective and aligned with that theory's idea of where trauma comes from, why people behave the way that they do, different thought patterns, how we conceptualize different emotions. Um, And so it was very intervention and theory based in graduate school Um, and I'm hearing from you that it was a lot more relational when you actually got out into the field oh absolutely I think you know obviously learning about the theories and stuff that may show up in the therapy room and in the alliance is really important but looking back um, my intervention my field work was probably the most important class that I ever took in grad school um, because that's the one that I learned most about myself and the type of therapist that I was going to be. And so I'm wondering for you, when did you realize that it was all based? Also, probably in my internship slash first job, one transitioned into the other. And it was in that time where I mean, you are a baby therapist, right? So I'm sitting in these rooms with these people face-to-face. They're talking about real issues, real struggles. And all the knowledge that I have has come from a textbook. And struggling with remembering and getting really caught up on, like, what was that intervention that was supposed to be used? And how how exactly did it go? And, you know, what, what am I supposed to say? And I remember speaking with some of the the therapists I looked up to at my internship and what they had come back to was how would you respond just as a human like what would you say as a human when somebody tells you something that they've been through that was really traumatic or difficult or challenging Um, and that kind of framed for me that's really not super intervention based I think the other pivotal point for me was when we began in graduate school talking about Yalom, mm, um, who yes. tends to be very relational based. Like yes. he comes, you know, he comes from a, a number of different theories, but his approach to therapy and the therapeutic relationship is a heavy emphasis on the therapeutic relationship driving our clinical insight, mm-hmm. which I, that was transformative for me. It really was. I remember, um, you know, seeing that approach, reading about it versus the other things that we learned from the textbook was like a little eye opening. Like, oh, this is there's a lot to keep track of here. And it's like you said, I mean, how does 
how doesn't one develop imposter syndrome when you're trying to remember all of these things from these big titans of psychology before us and you know the more you get into it the more you realize that it's it's more like guidelines (laughs) than it is anything else because you'll try an intervention you'll try a theory and that might not work because every client responds to things differently Mm -hmm. and if you look at it from a human level as well humans respond and hear messages differently depending on who's the one conveying that message yeah it's so interesting that you phrase it like guidelines because Mm -hmm. I can almost hear certain people like screaming in their heads being like what do you mean this is why or even clients who maybe Mm -hmm. don't have the knowledge of what it what being a therapist really entails and so it can kind of feel like what do you mean you know that that there aren't um, structured interventions and things like that and there are Um, But I think when we think of it in terms of guidelines, it kind of comes into this frame of the fear of harm that gets kind of instilled in us in graduate school, um, that if you don't use these interventions or this theory in this exact way, you've practiced time and time again in your internship or in cohorts in class, that you're going to harm your clients. And certainly harm happens. There are certainly unethical therapists. But it's interesting when we think about touching on the relationship, and I think that this is where Yalom's work kind of comes into play, Mm -hmm. that when we think about harm, if our focus is on the relationship and we're focused on helping clients explore their inner worlds and get in touch with themselves and heal within the therapeutic relationship, there are going to be some trial and errors. You're going to try an intervention. You're going to say something and go, oh, that didn't land how I hoped it did. So how do you, on that note, right, like what do you do if you try an intervention, you're kind of looking at these guidelines, these different interventions, theories that you align with, you try something new or you try something with a specific Mm -hmm. person, it doesn't land the way that you had hoped. What? Yeah, it's, it's certainly happened. And I think for me, it's more of embracing that because we are modeling what a healthy and secure relationship looks like for our clients, when you think about it from attachment-based theory, a secure attachment is not the absence of conflict. It's how you handle and resolve the conflict that makes the difference between a secure and a healthy relationship's last attachment. And so there are, there have been times in the therapy room where I've said something and somebody had like a reaction to it. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's lean into that and tell me what happened. Because you know what? If I said something wrong, I am also human. It's, it happens, and so I apologize, and I take my accountability. And in that, I remind myself that my by me taking accountability, I'm also modeling that that's something that's supposed to be happening in that client's life. So they're supposed to be surrounded by people who are able to take accountability for hurting them, and also that it's if they take accountability for hurting others, no one's going to implode on themselves. It's okay. This is supposed to be happening. So I tend to look at it that way, and I, I'm, I guess somewhat blessed that I am quite comfortable handling confrontation and conflict um, just because in the environment I grew up in. So I, I try to use that as a strength in the ways that I can in the therapy room. Beautifully said, right? That that you are modeling in those experiences how relationships should look for clients outside of the therapy room, even yes. when mistakes or a person is leaving their position or there's a transfer of care or there's a need for a higher level of care and even in those severances of the relationship there is 
deep clinical work that happens, even if it doesn't feel like sunshine and rainbows in the moment. I'm wondering, right, because when we think about it in that sense, Mm -hmm. there is a a huge point of transparency and accountability. And I'm not knocking psychodynamic, I'm not knocking Freud, um, that the response of the therapist is to automatically turn it back on the client. What was stirred up in you? What came up for you when I said that? What is what is happening in your body right now that you're noticing after I said that? And it just totally, in my opinion, can deflect and oh, yeah. leave clients feeling like, what the hell? Right. <laughs> what? What? Am I being gaslit in therapy? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so again, not knocking psychodynamic. I know there are plenty of awesome psychodynamic therapists. But when we come from that very Freud, early mm-hmm. psychotherapy model, it just is really difficult and so the question that was coming up for me there are subtle ways that we communicate yeah who we are and what we're about and then there are really clear and direct ways that we communicate who we are and what we're about so I'm wondering for you are there things that you notice that you either do intentionally or just kind of by happenstance that um clients might notice when they're walking into the therapy room or walking into a telehealth session with you yeah um I think so I, during consult calls, because I, I like to offer those, um, is when I really um, try my best to get to know what the client's preferred approach is. And if it's their first time in therapy, they don't know. So I, I tell them mine. And I tell them, you know, I'm, I'm very no-nonsense. I'm a very no-nonsense therapist. I am transparent. Obviously, I, I try to communicate the transparency with tact and consideration of knowing where my client is and able to receive that information or not able to. Um, and, and I make that very clear is that um, in the therapy room, there is going to be a lot of different emotions. And my primary um, consideration is that all emotions are safe in my therapy room. Mm-hmm. And so if I say something that is off-putting, please tell me. And if the client is crossing a boundary, I will also gently um, remind them of the boundaries in the therapy room. Um, And so it also just happens by happenstance where I'll make a reflection on what the client is saying or how they may be feeling depending on what they like if they can't get their emotions out I'll be like I wonder if you're feeling x y and z and they'll just look at me and be like how did you know that (laughs) and I just say you know there are situations in life where you learn certain things and it's you know as a therapist it's my job to work on my things on my own time so that I can be present for you so if I ever notice it's going in that direction where the client may have picked up that I've had a similar experience I remind them very quickly that we're not going to talk about my experience because I have I do that on my own time but I'm very much ready to hold the space for them and sometimes a client knowing that their therapist has been through something similar it also helps with the rapport because it's like okay so this person isn't just talking out of nowhere or out of a textbook is this is real life like these things happen and I've had multiple clients say you know what you make me not feel crazy I'm like yes because (laughs) just because I'm a therapist does not mean I can pull these skills out of anywhere all the time my husband can probably say that is particularly around communication skills because we are human and it happens there's going to be pieces of ourselves coming into the room yeah yeah Yeah. 
Oh, that's so in- so interesting um, to think about how you walk that line between being authentic and being true to ourselves, um, while also quite honestly putting on our therapist hat when we walk through that that door every day to do our work. Yeah. Something else that I often think about is, especially just thinking about that blank slate approach, mm-hmm. right? That even things like, or subtleties like what we wear yeah. communicates things. Um, the references that we use, like I use humor in a lot of my sessions mm-hmm. with people, but things like having a ring on your finger right. or things like um, dressing super casual communicates something mm-hmm. to our clients and is in some form a self-disclosure. And I yeah. think in graduate school, that was one of those things that was like, you have to wear business casual right. and dress pants and flats and a sweater. And mm-hmm. clearly I am not that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who can't see me, I'm wearing a sweatshirt and have my hair up in a bun and converse. So, <laughs> you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that because sometimes I don't even really think about that just because I'm, my personality is already just, you get what you get. And so I didn't even think about that, right? Of just how much like that, that does send these subtle cues of like where you are in life and, you know, what kind of person you are. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because now that gives me some food for thought of yeah. like, now that I'm looking back is I remember graduating and going into my first job and freaking out going to Express or New York and Company to get these business clothes that I absolutely could not really afford and also were super uncomfortable for what I was doing. Again, I was sitting down on the floor oftentimes playing with kids. What was I doing in a pair of slacks and a blouse? It just, you know, and and now that I have opened my own practice, I notice that there's also a shift in the way that I feel like I want to show up for my clients. Um, So there are days where I am dressed to the nines because I know I'm going to be sitting on a chair and other days like today where it's casual Friday and I'm wearing a t-shirt with a cat fist pumping a human. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But there's, there is some authenticity in just dressing how you Mm -hmm. want to dress whenever that mood strikes you, right? Like some days you're right. There are days where I will pull out one of my dress pants and try a super trendy outfit. And then there are other days where I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't sleep last night. I don't feel super great. Mm -hmm. The holidays just came. I am ready to just check out and talk to my clients, but I do not have the capacity to put on a put together outfit. But it's interesting because that is one of those narratives that's drilled home for us Mm -hmm. that careful, you know, you don't want to send this message to your clients or you don't want to send that message to your clients, but you bring up a good point that you were working with kids. So you're really going to be on the floor playing Uno in your slacks and a blouse. Um, And for me, a lot of times internships for a lot of people start out um, or first jobs start out in community mental health. So a lot of those populations are low income on state funded insurances and yeah, marginalized communities. And being somebody who at one time was on Medicaid, I didn't want to sit in front of somebody in a full business suit Mm -hmm. talking about my difficulties. I wanted to somebody that I felt was human and relatable across from me. Um, So I try to remind myself of that too, that there is 
connection and relatability even in how we dress and the the stigma that that can create like you're over there and I'm over here in my three-piece suit and business casual or business attire yeah and it's really I feel that that really influences the therapeutic relationship it absolutely does and it 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 helps also like when you can put thought right so now I'm thinking about like my um my Nero spicy clients I have a kiddo who first session I know that I'm not wearing heels that day because I am walking around in circles in my office because that's the way they talk and that's the way they are able to get their energy out and it's funny because some therapists be like well you're not you know you're not teaching him to sit down at appropriate times I'm like well this is a safe space though so if the way that you know they're holding it in all day not being quote-unquote inappropriate at school so they can't pace around because that's considered quote-unquote inappropriate he's holding it in all day so if in session they need to walk it out so that they can talk then that's what we're doing we're doing jumping jacks we're skipping we're walking because that's what they need and it's sometimes like when you stick too much to the guidelines so to speak and the theories is you really miss like the potential to create a really great connection and really do therapy in a way that works for the client yes 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 yeah meeting people where they're at oh yeah like who said we have to stuff neurodivergent folks into a box and say that they have to act quote-unquote normal right how about we allow them to do what works for them that yeah if you need your fidgets while we're doing emdr processing because that's what's going to help you focus 110 percent we're going to roll with that right i'm not going to open up my emdr guidebook and say well actually um that it really comes down to meeting people where they're at and accepting them for who they are yeah and how we present in session communicates that level of acceptance i hope that um so when talking to um, you know Dr. Whitson at UNH, one of the things that I found out is that now in order to teach in a counseling program, you have to have a counseling education and supervision degree because they're all shifting over to that. And I, I sincerely hope that those programs are starting to, the same way that they drill in us that we need to complete CEUs to keep up with how mental health approaches and interventions are changing, that they're also teaching about that flexibility piece when you are thinking about like case conceptualization and treating a client because it really does make the difference between what a client perceives as a good versus bad therapist. Um, and, and it really lies with the relationship that you can create because you can think that you're the best, but here's the thing, if your client's not actually getting anywhere because you're so focused on what you need or you want to feel like, I don't know, you're checking off boxes, then you're not really actually gonna get to the root of it. Um, and I think it's really important. I, I hope that these programs are shifting to a more relationship-based approach when, when teaching about like how do you establish rapport with a client. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, did you did you watch the recent documentary on Netflix by Jonah Hill? I have not. Stutz? I haven't. So Stutz, the documentary, is a documentary by Jonah Hill, and it follows his, it's directed by Jonah Hill. He is um, interviewing and 
telling the story of his psychiatrist's life. Um, and he was doing therapy with his psychiatrist, so Dr. Phil Stutz. Um, and in this documentary, it's remarkable on screen to watch their relationship yeah. because it's, I think if you were to go back 50 years and show this to therapists mm-hmm. back then, people would be gasping and like mortified mortified that the type of relationship that's happening on screen. I mean, they are cursing, mm-hmm. they are telling jokes. At one point they exchanged I love yous, but yeah. in, in a really meaningful and relational yeah. and like compassionate, caring way, yeah. not in a boundary crossing right. type way. It was right. just in a, as humans, when we feel deeply connected to people, oh, yeah. we feel love. And Absolutely. that is not an abnormal thing to feel. Just watching that interaction was just so, it was so moving. And they talk about different concepts that honestly aren't super unheard of to a lot of different psychotherapy theories and communities and types of therapists. Um, But the way that Stutz has framed them and... um, communicated them to Jonah has such clearly had an impact on his life. It just, I could talk about it for six hours because (laughs) it was such, I I think I cried at the end. It just was so moving. And I think it really highlights what therapy can be Mm -hmm. in this day and age. That it is not just always laying on a couch, rambling on while your therapist writes sketchy notes on a clipboard (laughs) and doesn't tell you what's on there. Absolutely. And you, you bring up a good point, right? Because there's, there's that fine line, right? Where you have to, so one of the things that we're taught is when you do, um, want to self-disclose is think about the reason behind why you're self-disclosing, right? Is it going to be beneficial to the client or is it just beneficial to you? And so I think that is something that over time, you learn to read the room. You learn to know what your client responds to, what they don't respond to. You really have to exercise your active listening skills in order to make the self-disclosure land correctly and not be harmful to the client. So in some ways, it's almost like an art, um, you know, where I'm sure that, you know, Jonah Hill and his psychiatrist probably didn't start throwing around I love you's like the first two weeks of their relationship. Right. Right. And it's like it, it takes it takes time to cultivate. But you're absolutely right is those because, again, we're modeling healthy relationships and you sometimes hear and support your clients through like literally the roughest moments of their life and you see their abilities and their resiliency and also when they need to break down and you support them through it that also models for your client that you're a trustworthy person and that's what everybody looks for in a relationship is someone that they can trust and so of course there's going to be that level of love and you know there are clients that I know that I can um, challenge a little bit more than others based on just where they're at and they'll appreciate me for it or they'll say like nope not touching that today and I'm like all right, we're not touching that today. You got it. You know, but it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's really helpful to be able to, um, put, bring pieces of yourself into the therapy room in order to make a long lasting and, you know, um, rapport, one that's deep in connection. And how you can use that rapport and the therapeutic relationship to discuss 
what might be going wrong Mm -hmm. in relationships outside. There have been times where we directly address the relationship and say, man, I'm wondering, this dynamic is coming out in our relationship. How else is this also playing out in your relationships out there? Um, And that can be really eye-opening when Mm -hmm. we have the rapport. Obviously, that doesn't happen on session two or session three. Um, These are people I've been working with for years. Um, And they're able to, a lot of times it's, oh my gosh, I had no idea that that was something that I did. And that can even be something as like interrupting or Mm -hmm. um, things like that. And it's just using that relationship to then talk about other outside relationships. It's all clinical. It gives us all this clinical insight. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, right, is leaning in with curiosity. You have, for those who are budding therapists here, for the... For you to get the information that you want to get, you have to lean in with curiosity. Glazing it over can also send the message to your client that you are not actually able or willing to go deep into them. And chances are, is if you feel that in the therapeutic room, so do they. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember that a relationship is dichotomous, which means that if you are noticing something, the other person's noticing it too. You guys react off of each other. Our job mm-hmm. is to model a healthy relationship. And with that, there is curiosity and there's care, right? There's this, I, there's this wanting to understand and be attentive. And so, you know, if anyone out there is noticing that they are afraid to breach a subject with a client, maybe it's time to bring that up either in your supervision or in your own therapy. Um, Because there have been plenty of times where, um, well, like in my internship, actually, when I realized that I knew I wanted to go into trauma work, um, there were moments where um, my client would divulge something and I'd feel something in my body where it's just like, ooh, um, that felt uncomfortable. And I had to, you know, maybe put a pin in it then because I didn't know how to address it correctly and then maybe bring it up in supervision or I realized it's something that I had to touch in therapy. And so that's what the books are talking about with the transference and countertransference, right? Is being very aware of yourself so that you can work on it. Um, and you learn a lot from your clients. You learn a lot about yourself as as a person, as a therapist. Um, and the important thing is work on it on your own time um, so that you can show up for your client. And listen, it's okay if there is, and I feel like a lot of therapists are gonna, there's, there's gonna be like split half and half. So I apologize <laughs> if I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, but I firmly believe that, If you know there is something that you have not worked through in your personal life, do not see those clients because you are going to do them a disservice. And the reason I say that is I recently saw a TikTok. I don't remember the name of the person, um, but the therapist was going off about how some, how it's, you know, inconsiderate for some therapists to not see a certain type of population. And while I kind of got where she was coming from, she was particularly talking about personality disorders, I also somewhat disagree. I think that if the reason why a person is shying away from personality disorders is because it's quote unquote too too hard, then I would say examine that a little bit further um, and figure out where that's coming from. But then I think back right to like when I was working two jobs, I was working at an agency nine to five, and then I was working at a group practice from five to eight. People with personality disorders tend to have complex trauma. 
There was no way that my burnt out self was going to do good work or beneficial work to that client. And so I had to make a conscious choice that I could not take complex cases. I could take cases on life transitions because that's something that I was able to handle. You have to be aware of what your limitations are because that you will find in your code of ethics is knowing what your limitations are and what your scope of competency is. We are not supposed to be for every client and not every client is supposed to be for us. Let's just allow that yes. to sit for a moment because holy shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to shout that to the people in the back. Yes. I, I think there, I agree, right? There is this mm-hmm. kind of split that you can, I can see both sides, yeah. right? That on one hand, it can feel exclusionary right. to say, I can, you know, I, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. I cannot see that type of population. Right whatever population that is. Um, but when you're working through your own stuff, yes. it is vital. Um, oh, yeah. So if I can, for instance, yeah. um, during my internship, um, I was very, I was still kind of early in my own therapy and healing journey. And I was currently in between therapists. I had just left a therapist who I, I wasn't expecting to leave, but I walked out of the room. That's a different story for a different day. Mm -hmm. Um, But essentially, I was in between therapists and the clients that I was seeing, I was just getting case after case that had the same kind of presenting difficulty that was wanting to be addressed. And I wanted to help my clients address those, but I was not in a space where I was able to be 100% grounded and present for them that I was getting actively triggered in sessions and that's not fair to them so I spoke to a supervisor I spoke to um, the intake staff I minimally disclosed Mm -hmm. to at least the intake staff but I had shared with my supervisor that it was a population that for that time being I couldn't see that I needed to and then I asked for referrals I said do you have any therapists I can go see with this specialty because Mm -hmm. I have to address this. And it's, interestingly enough, now that I've done that work, that is a population I love, love, mm-hmm. love working with. Yes. And, but I am so much more capable of doing the work and being there for them in the way that they need because I took that time. And it was probably about eight, eight months, maybe a year, yeah. um, before I returned back to that staff and said, okay, I'm ready. And yeah. It was, it's hard because obviously in those situations, it's, it doesn't always come out right away, mm-hmm. but again, there can be a conversation and there's a way to do that compassionately. Right. That's why supervision and yeah. consultation and peer support is so important. Absolutely. And listen, that doesn't go away for my licensed people listening in. <laughs> you guys should still be seeking peer consultation and supervision because, you know, yes, we're licensed. That does not mean we know everything. Um, and sometimes it's helpful to lean into your colleagues and ask for, you know, an alternate perspective because maybe the one that you have isn't it or it's not working and, you know, you're, you and your client are, um, are reaching like a like a block in the road and so it's you know remember that you're there for the client Mm -hmm. Um, you're there to help the client make sense of their things and you do that for yourself on your own time Mm -hmm. Um, and so you know with that being said disclosure it it depends I think that's the that's the answer it's it depends (laughs) it depends on if it's appropriate and why yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. The why is huge. You mentioned that earlier, that asking yourself, what is the purpose of sharing what I'm about to share? Mm -hmm. Um, But having those those conversations with clients is incredibly, it can be incredibly transformational when we are able to be open to some degree and share certain relatable experiences with them. Um, You'd mentioned earlier, it kind of popped into my brain, um, again, as we're talking about like right fit and Mm -hmm. the relationship and the power of disclosure, um, also the like cons of disclosure depending. Um, So you are, um, you do EMDR Mm -hmm. and so do I. So um, in a lot of my beginning stages of working with people, through EMDR, um, a lot of times they feel a bit unsure about mm. how it works, what it looks like, yeah. are they doing it right, oh, is yeah. it supposed to look like this, how long does it take, all of that. And I I think sometimes I, I try I have to just chuckle with my clients because mm-hmm. often my answer is there is no right or wrong. Right. I don't have an answer for you. It's yeah. really about what ever your individual and unique experience is and we go with that and when they get really stuck in okay but what does that mean yes (laughs) um I often disclose to them I'm very transparent with my clients when they get to this kind of stuck place that I myself have done EMDR Mm -hmm. um that during that year off um from seeing a certain population of clients I was doing my own EMDR therapy to work through some trauma yeah And I share that with my clients and say, look, this isn't just some training that I took once back in the day where I, you know, practiced on some people and ran with it. This is a a therapy that I'm very familiar with. I myself have been in your shoes, on your side, and I know how it feels. It can be confusing and Mm -hmm. you want to get it right. I'm here to reassure you that there is no right or wrong. And a lot of times there's this like relief that washes over them of like, (gasps) Oh, oh, so you're not just like preaching from some textbook that you read (laughs) about what this therapy is, but you've actually experienced it Mm -hmm. and I've been through it and I share with them that it took me a year and it doesn't always take that long for people. Um, Sometimes it can take longer, but that there shouldn't be shame around not getting it right because there is no right or wrong. So that's a form of self-disclosure in knowing that the person that you're working with isn't just talking out of their ass. Literally, that's yes. the best way I could put yes. that. I like trying yep. to think of some pro- like no, the, I think eloquent that way to was say it. the eloquent way <laughs> yeah. to say it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I, yes, I also let my clients know that I've also done EMDR, and it's the it's it's the look of relief for me because it's like oh, okay. So I mean, you know, and, and I think that as we talk about how mental health has shifted, I think it's really important to remember that. What people want is authenticity. I think people are quite done and over with this idea of us versus them. Yeah. No. There is, it, it just, it doesn't seem to work anymore. Um, it no. doesn't seem to get to the root of the issue anymore. Um, relatability and connection. Yeah. 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 And every therapist brings that. In their own way. Yes. Um, Just as people in our day-to-day lives are not always our people, Mm -hmm. um, that Susan might not be your person, but John is, and that's okay. Um, 
therapists are the same way yes. that bringing it back to kind of where we started mm-hmm. it's not a one-size-fits-all approach right. that there is no superior theory or approach or um, method of giving therapy and receiving therapy but it's about finding what works yes. for you yeah. um, and for your clients Absolutely. and so I'm curious when we think in that sense you, I know you'd mentioned kind of um, like during your consultations you're very clear about your approach and who you are and that you're direct and um, not afraid of like confrontation mm-hmm. how else would you say that you describe kind of your approach yeah um, I love to say to my clients I will challenge you but I'm not going to push you and because that's a very big difference, right, is I tell my clients that in order, I'm fully aware that they're not going to divulge everything to me the first two, three, four, five sessions, um, but I meet them where they're at. And I try my best to back it up with my actions. So I let them know, like, you know, they'll say something, they'll have a reaction. And if it's an angry one, they'll be like, sorry. And I'm like, nope, we don't have to do that here. I'm ready and wanting to help you make sense of that anger. I want to help hold it for you. Um, and it's it's letting my clients know that while I do tend to challenge, I do it from a place of, again, reading the room and where my client is at because ultimately this is for them. And so I like to drill that into my client's head. This is for you. I will challenge you, but I'm not going to push you. So a challenge is going to have some discomfort, but pushing you like most clients already know what that feels like when they feel pushed around or when they feel pressured. And I make a point to say, this is why transparency is helpful because I'm going to challenge you and it's going to cause some discomfort. And I would, I would hope that you feel comfortable enough telling me. And if I notice your discomfort, I'm also going to make a comment on it so that we can delve in it deeper and we can foster the relationship that you've always needed and never had. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you are on point today. That was so beautifully said. I love that. Um, it brings up for me this concept of which I want and hope to be more than just a concept. But mm-hmm. as we kind of talk about um, therapy programs uh, for graduate students changing and growing and evolving as we evolve as a society and our ideas around mental health evolve, it brings up um, the power of mutual decision making and power of choice in therapy. Um, that Similarly, I often let my clients know when they first come in and see me that I'm not a knowing, all-knowing wizard. I do not know everything. I don't know it all. I really don't. And frankly, I am always learning. I always want to know more. And I don't ever really want to get to a point where I feel like I know it all because I don't think that that point exists. Um, And so I work hard to try to level that power dynamic. Inevitably, there is a power dynamic in the therapy room just by the nature of how it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to level a little bit with, you are the expert on yourself. Yes, you know yourself I best. know things. I know things about science and neurology and the brain and certain theories of trauma and emotion and relationships and all of that. And we can talk about those things to help name some of the experiences that you're having but ultimately you are the expert on yourself so I'm 
not ever in the business of forcing people to do things that they don't want to do in the therapy room. Because again, here we are creating another relationship that's probably happening to them elsewhere. Exactly. So helping them feel the power of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard a beautiful analogy recently um, from Cambria Evans, an EMDR consultant, and she used this analogy of swimming in a pool that we can either dip our toes in or we can get our ankles in or we can wade in waist deep or you can let me know when we're in the deep end and when you're ready to go and how deep you want to go Um, or we can simply sit on the edge of the pool and just observe how the water looks how we feel standing by the pool that when we allow our clients that choice and when we present it to them as a choice, there is empowerment there. And that in turn facilitates this openness and sense of vulnerability. Like, well, because you said that, maybe I am willing to go up to my waist in the pool. Maybe I am willing to, you know, dive in a little deeper than maybe I thought. But if we're like dragging them into the pool or we just throw them right in, they're going to go kicking and screaming and panicking and it's not going to be helpful. So I just thought it was a really beautiful analogy of the power of choice and mutual decision-making, especially when it comes to their treatment that as a professional, I'm going to have some professional opinions and recommendations and I can provide education about certain topics and terms and experiences and theories, but those are all going to happen in the context of a conversation about what feels best for you. Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I've found myself having this conversation a lot over the past week with my clients about what it looks like for them. And I find myself I found myself repeating often in various of my sessions that their progress is going to look like their progress. That there is no right, there are no supposed tos, right? I take that out of the EMDR script. Yes. There are no supposed tos in this process. So, I always tell my clients what you want to work on even if it's the same thing that I'm working on with someone else, your progress is going to look different. You're going to choose your own, what your boundaries are, and other people are going to have their own boundaries. And it's, I'm glad that you brought up this idea of choice because again, as somebody who likes to niche down to working on healing childhood trauma, when you are constantly and consistently told that you don't have a choice, that you just have to do as you're told, and you have to act in the way that you're told or is labeled as quote unquote appropriate, you lose that you you lose that thought that you have choice. You believe the lie that you've been fed that you don't have one. And so being able to sit in a room with a provider who's telling you, well, what does it look like for you? What makes sense for you can be super empowering. Yeah. What an interesting way that we bring even pieces of ourselves into that relationship. Yeah. Wow, that was a fruitful discussion. Yes. Um, so let's wrap it up and we'll recap just briefly here. Um, so what we've touched on today was really focusing on um, modern therapy and how that's shifted from um, what's normally taught in graduate school and how that shift has really emphasized the power of relationships and connection. Uh, we talked about subtle disclosures and direct disclosures Um asking yourself why we're making a disclosure um, and how it benefits the client if we are making a disclosure, um, both subtly or directly. 
uh, we talked about authenticity, so bringing mm-hmm. yourself into the therapy room, right? Parts of you, um, either through just being transparent with clients about what's going on, being in a brain fog, what you're wearing that day, um, things like that, that ties into even those subtle disclosures. Um, and of course, managing transference and countertransference and seeking appropriate supervision and support from your peers when you're noticing that you're struggling in certain client dynamics, um, getting that support that you need. Yeah. Thank you to everyone who tuned in today. Be sure to tune into next week's episode where we dive more into mutual decision making at all stages of therapy. Thanks for listening to this week's discussion. And until next time, sincerely to imperfect therapists.